welcome to the Redeemer 20 Sermon Podcast, where our goal is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. My name is Luke Dirks, and I'm your host, and I'm also privileged to lead the 20s ministry at Redeemer Church in beautiful Rockford, Illinois. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at our Thursday night gathering at 7 p.m. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope you also join us at a future Thursday. All right. Yeah. Good to see you guys. I feel like it would be a complete miss not to say this. I was not planning on it, but uh, there was a wedding that happened in the 20s ministry a couple weeks ago, and uh, Ben and Abby Peterson are with us tonight, and I know they were here. You, uh, if you don't know me at all, or uh, first of all, my name's Alex, but then beyond that, Ben and I were roommates for uh, half a year, but uh, then he upgraded. So anyways, very happy for him, very happy for him. Well, tonight is an exciting night for all of us uh, because it marks the beginning of a new teaching series for the 20s ministry. We're going to be taking a break from the Gospel of John this summer so that we can study the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. So I don't really care if your favorite preacher is John Piper I don't really care if it's John MacArthur. I don't really care if it's even Pastor John. Jesus does it better. And so we are going to go to his sermon, which is perfect. And over the summer, we're going to be exploring this incredible message from Christ in the Gospel of Matthew, week to week. So this is what we're going to be doing the rest of the summer. And really what you need to know from the beginning is that our vision for this series is that you would walk away every Thursday night reflecting your identity in Christ more clearly as a result of encountering God's law. The law of God is what takes center stage in the Sermon on the Mount. And ultimately, the same must happen in your life and in mine. And the reason for that is this. In Scripture, what you find time and time again is that God has set apart a people for himself. In the Old Testament, that group of people was limited to ethnic Israel. But now through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, it has come to include everyone who puts their faith in him. And this is the good news of the gospel, that people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation have been set apart by God through faith in Christ Jesus to be his people. And what you have to understand about that is that God has not set this people apart so that they could stay the same. Instead, he did it so that they would look different. God's law was not abolished at the cross, nor did Christ die, just so that we could look and act like the non-believers around us until he returns. Instead, the Apostle Peter says that if you are in Christ... That is, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, entrusted in him, and given your life to him, this is what the Apostle Peter says. He says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And friends, what that means for your lives and for mine is this. Our greatest purpose in life is to belong to God and to proclaim his excellencies. And that should amaze you. 
We live in a world where everybody around us, especially in our age group, is clinging and grasping for a sense of belonging. And I'm sure if you even looked in your own heart for a second, you would feel that. And typically where people in the world try to find that sense of belonging is in a certain group or in an identity, something that marks them out, whether that is their work, whether that be where they go to church, whether that be their sexuality, whatever it might be. But when you come to the gospel, the good news is that if you are in Christ, then you belong to God. And you never have to have that questioned. Your sense of belonging is always secure. To put it in the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, if you are in Christ, then your chief end is to enjoy God and glorify Him forever. And that's the purpose that God gives you, and it is a glorious purpose. I hope you see that. But the truth is, you can't do that if your life remains unchanged by grace. Think of it this way. Just as a son or a daughter honors their parents through their obedience, so God's people proclaim his excellencies, not only through their words, but also through their obedience to his law. In that same scenario, imagine if the kid were to go around and everywhere they went, they would proclaim, oh, I love my mom and dad. I want to honor them with everything that I have, all these things. But then as soon as they got home and they got asked to take out the garbage, they said no. Or if mom and dad asked them to go pick up a sibling from school, they said no. And every other chore that they were asked to do, they said no to. What would it tell you? It would tell you that the words they spoke to everyone else were false. And the same is true for us. Because of that, obedience to the law is an essential part of the Christian faith. And though none of us can do that perfectly, I will be the first to testify. We all sin. That does not mean we get a free pass. As Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The grace of Christ does not neglect, negate, sorry, our responsibility to obedience to God's law. It doesn't take it away. And one of the most common ways that we fail to uphold that responsibility is by forgetting what it is that we're supposed to obey. So we forget. And a great example of this truth is found in the nation of Israel during the time of the kings. So if you were to open up to the Old Testament, what you would find is that after King Solomon fell into idolatry, the piety, that is the practiced holiness of the nation and their power and their glory started to fade year after year, king after king, and generation after generation until God's law and the worship of his name was almost completely lost. The people forgot the law of God, and they became like the pagan nations that surrounded them. Though God had called them to be holy, which literally means to be set apart, there was no longer anything to set them apart. And God was going to curse them for it. But then, if you were to keep reading, what you would find is that suddenly a new new king showed up on the scene, King Josiah. And he ascended to the throne at a young age, and with the guidance of wise counsel, he steered the nation back towards God. 
In 2 Kings, it says that Josiah tore his clothes, that he repented for the generations of sin that had happened. He tore down the idols and the pagan gods that had infected the land, and he carried out a vast religious reformation that culminated in the celebration of the Passover. So all of this, why am I saying it? All of this he did in spite of the sin that he was brought up in. And do you know what caused the whole thing? Luke pointed it out to me as I was studying. It all started with a rediscovery of God's law. Listen to 2 Kings 22. It says that Hilkiah, the high priest, came back from the temple and said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and he told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And just like that, the law of God was rediscovered after being lost for over 60 years. So just think about that with me for a second. 60 years went by without the Bible. And yet, as soon as it was rediscovered, transformation happens. I love this. King Josiah heard the law, and immediately he carries out this full-scale reformation And for a time, he brought the nation back to God and to God's blessings. Oh, Redeemer, would it be that God would do the same for us? Certainly, our hope is not found in the salvation of man or really in a country, but all the same. I think we should be grieved by the fact that our nation has abandoned its Christian heritage We live in what I would call an increasingly godless society, much like Israel was in the book of Kings. And because of this, we all face two temptations. The first one is to despair, right? And I feel like we see this all the time, like just give up, right? You know, things were better back then. (laughs) Now we have to deal with all this. Let's just circle the wagons. And they isolate. But the second temptation is that we would become like the world that we're living in. We're all frogs in a boiling pot of sin, so to speak. And because the changes start out small, we can easily stay blind to the influence that this world has on us as we're drawn away from practicing our faith. And friends, regardless of the state of our nation, and really regardless of your circumstances, whatever those might look like, God's will for your life is that you would stand firm in your identity in Christ in spite of wherever the country is and that you would live out a countercultural Christianity that looks different. And I hope you hear my heart on this. That does not mean that I am leaning one way or the other politically. You need to just become ultra conservative and go off. No. This is saying you need to remember what kingdom you truly belong to. And that kingdom is God's kingdom. And so we need to go back to the law. That's why we need to be reminded of it. Because ultimately, it is the law that reveals our sin and shows us that we cannot please God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. If you miss that part of the message, then everything, I, everything else I say is worthless because it'll just be moralistic. It starts with faith. And then and only then, the law shows us how we can live in a way that is pleasing to God. 
I love how the reformers put it. And the, the Puritans would say the same thing. They said, the law sends us to Christ to be justified. And Christ sends us to the law to be sanctified. The second part of that statement encapsulates our vision for this series through the Sermon on the Mount. If you're here and you do not know Christ, if you are not a follower of Jesus, the more than anything, our desire is first that you would know that you're loved and that we want you here. Secondly, that we would want you to become convicted over your sin. And third, that you would confess that sin Repent of it and turn to Jesus Christ, who in his grace will receive you and forgive you for all of it. But with that, if you're here and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have professed faith, then our goal for you is to send you back to the law to be sanctified, just like King Josiah. And if that is going to happen, he's the person we need to be like today. We need to be like King Josiah. We need to dust the pages off and open up God's word. And we need to rediscover the law. And we need to engage with that law really in a way that is going to humble our hearts, take us back to the cross, and transform our lives. And thankfully, such a presentation of the law does exist, and it exists in the Sermon on the Mount. So that's where we're headed. I would ask then that you guys all turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 1. Really, with the rest of our time, that was my long intro to the series, so I will try and keep the message tight. (laughs) No promises. But with the rest of our time, we're going to be going through Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And my title for this sermon is Citizens in the Kingdom of God. So if you're taking notes, citizens in the kingdom of God. And I take that title from Philippians chapter 3. In verse 20, Paul says to the church that our citizenship is in heaven. And as I read that, the question that came to my mind, and really the question I hope to answer tonight, is what exactly does it mean to be a citizen in the kingdom of God? You see, when Jesus began his earthly ministry... He started out by proclaiming the good news of the kingdom everywhere he went. He was telling everybody around him, especially his followers, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And he was going to invite them into that kingdom through repentance. So if they were to confess their sins, he's pretty much telling them, guys, look, the kingdom is here. Ultimately, because I'm here. So don't miss it. But what exactly was life supposed to look like if you got in? I'm pretty sure that would have been the question that many of his disciples were asking himself. You kind of can imagine it. All right, Jesus, we're here. (laughs) You've invited us. We're all in. But now what? What exactly does it mean to be a citizen in this kingdom? That question underlies the entire Sermon on the Mount. And it's what Jesus pretty much gives as his manifesto in these two chapters. What does it look like to follow me? What does it look like to follow me? And in these first 12 verses, which we're going to be going through, Jesus answers that question comprehensively. 
through this passage, also known as the Beatitudes. And so really what you have here is that Jesus is going to give us a 30,000-foot view of what it means to be a disciple or a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. And it's from that 30,000-foot view that I want to draw out several aspects of God's will for our lives as citizens. And so with that in mind, let's read the text together. I'm going to start actually in verse 23 of chapter 4. It gives the context. But it says that Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And seeing the crowds, Jesus went up the mountain, and he, when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In all honesty, we could probably spend the entire series on those 12 verses and barely scratch the surface of what they have to offer. The Beatitudes contain some of the richest and some of the most beautiful teachings from Christ in all of Scripture. And while I certainly can't get to it all, my hope is to provide a helpful crash course on this passage for you all. When you look at it, it's worth noting that there are nine times where Jesus says uh, those two words, blessed are. Blessed are. And really, it should be counted as eight times since the last two are one and the same. He's just repeating himself. But regardless, those statements of blessings are where the name Beatitudes comes from. Its root stem comes from the Latin word beatus, I think is how you pronounce it. And the word itself means blessings. So just as we read, this passage is filled with statements of blessing. And before we dive into those statements, I want to give you five qualifiers that will help you to better understand this text. So five qualifiers. And I would encourage you, if you are taking notes, these would be good to write down. And if you have a phone, I would also put these in there so that you can come back to them. But here, here's the, the qualifiers. The first one is this. Jesus addresses the Beatitudes to believers. Jesus addresses the Beatitudes to believers. Look with me back at verses 1 and 2. 
It says that seeing the crowds, Jesus went up the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. That's worth noting. It says the word disciples, because ultimately, this passage is addressed to those who are following Christ, not non-believers. And so that if, again, if that is you, and you are here, and you have not given your life to Christ, then the first step before you can really track with anything I'm about to say is to submit your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord. And that isn't just praying a prayer. That isn't just, you know, I was baptized as a kid. That is a surrendering of your life to Jesus and saying, I'm not enough. It's got to be you. And if you don't start there, the reason why I mention that is because everything else in this would become legalistic. And what that means is that it would become a way for you to try to earn God's favor in your life. And that will only lead you to condemnation. (laughs) Trying to earn anything from God leads you nowhere. The beautiful thing about the gospel is not about what you earn from God, it's about what you receive from God freely. And so I just want to start there, that Jesus addresses this to believers. And as a side note, that's all believers. This is not just given to a sect of like, highly qualified theologians and pastors. This is for everyone who has followed Christ. These characteristics, these statements of blessing are to mark your life. Second qualifier, the Beatitudes are made up of the responsibilities and privileges that come with citizenship. Let me say that again because it's important. The Beatitudes are made up of the responsibilities and the privileges that come with citizenship in heaven. The example would be just verse 3. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Block 1. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Block 2. Block 1 is the responsibility. As a believer, you are responsible to be what? Poor in spirit. And if you are, what is the privilege? The kingdom of heaven. And I hope that helps you as we go through this, that every single one of these, you can slice it that way. It is the responsibility God has given you as a citizen in his kingdom, and then the privilege that comes with that responsibility. Third qualifier. Believers are called to each of those responsibilities and given each privilege. This is key. I cannot stress this enough for you guys. This was such an encouragement to me. When it goes through all these verses, these are not just eight separate groups of disciples that Jesus is talking to. He's not saying, all right, group one, you are going to be the meek ones, right, who receive the earth. And then group two, you are going to be pure in heart so that you can see God. No, he is saying, all of you who would follow me are to be marked by every single one of these responsibilities and given every single privilege. So this is not the strength finders test. This is not the Enneagram where you're a four-wing seven or something like that. You get all of it here. It's all for you, okay? So don't miss that. Qualifier number four. None of these are natural tendencies. Not one of these is natural to who you are as a sinner, which is all of us. And so every single one of these that we walk through are going to run contrary to the flesh within you. And I say that because the implication is that you will have to work at these things. It will take hard work to carry out the responsibilities found in here. And with that, if you ever see them, it is the grace of God and a gift that he has given to you. Qualifier number five. 
This is probably the one I would emphasize the most heavily for you. This is not a random catalog. Instead, it is a progressive list. What you find in the Beatitudes is a step-by-step process where each step taken unleashes blessing and unlocks another step. One of the early church fathers, his name was Chrysostom, said it this way, the Beatitudes function as a sort of golden chain where each link precedes the next. It starts with being poor in spirit and entering into the kingdom of heaven and then everything flows from that first step. Mourning comes before meekness. Meekness comes before a hunger for righteousness. A hunger for righteousness comes before mercy. Mercy comes before purity. Purity before peacemaking. And peacemaking comes before persecution. Do you see how that works? Okay. It's important that you do. And I hope you hear this from me. This isn't to say that there is some kind of hierarchy in the Christian faith where you are just leveling up. And once you get to the next one, you're done. Not at all. Instead, this is to acknowledge that there is a pathway for discipleship. And that path involves sanctification, and it generally follows this pattern. And I mention this because this is where some of you are missing it in your lives. And this is where I think the Beatitudes get really practical. Some of you have felt held up in your spiritual growth. And unfortunately, you cannot understand why you are still not pure in heart yet, or you're still not a good peacemaker after reading all the books and studying it as much as you can. And may I just submit to you that your inability to grow in those areas might be tied to one of the steps that came before. The reason why you might lack a pure heart is because you haven't learned to mourn over your sin yet. And the reason why you fail at peacemaking might be because you haven't learned meekness. This isn't the case every time, but very often our stunted spiritual growth in one of these beatitudes is directly tied to a preceding step that we have either skipped or we need to go back and work on. And I think, for me at least, as I was studying, that was so helpful. Because you can get so focused in on one of these. Like, I just, man, I want to hunger for righteousness. I want to hunger for righteousness. But again, you've never learned how to mourn over your sin. It's never caused you to weep. And so there's kind of a disconnect there. And it's almost like a ladder where the second step is broken, and all we can do is look up and wonder why we can't get past the fifth one, right? And I think part of what God wants for you and wants for us is to unleash blessing through the refocusing of your attention to some of those prior steps, And so it it is a good rule of thumb. If you are struggling in an area of life pertaining to these, especially later on in the list, it might be helpful to just look back and be like, oh, I've been missing it here, here, and here. And if you're not seeing any of the steps, then maybe you need to go back to the first one. Okay, those are my five qualifiers. I think they're worth going through because otherwise you will misunderstand the Sermon on the Mount. So with those in mind, let's dive into Christ's answer to the question, what does it mean to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. Jesus gives his answer in eight parts, and again, I'm going to try my best to get through these. I ask for your grace tonight. Uh, But as I do, I would encourage you again just to write these down so you can follow along and come back to them later. It would be worth doing. But starting with the first, being a citizen in the kingdom of God means that you are called to poverty 
and given a kingdom. It means that you are called to poverty and given the kingdom. Look with me at verse 3. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the Old Testament context, that word poor is not talking about a literal or material need. But rather, it is speaking to a spiritual poverty that acknowledges its dependence on God. It's in the same way that David describes himself in Psalm 34, verse 6. Speaking of his own great need, he says, This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all of his troubles. And so for David, being a poor man meant suffering and not being able to do anything about it except for running to God. It really, it is to admit that you are a sinner under God's holy wrath, deserving nothing but his eternal judgment with no way in yourself to get out of it. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. As it says in the glorious hymn, Rock of Ages cleft from me, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Those are the words of someone who is poor in spirit. It is, again, a complete denial of the self. And that is where we must begin to receive the privilege of entering the kingdom of God. As Charles Spurgeon once said, the way to rise in the kingdom is to sink in ourselves. I thought that was good. That if you wish to be a citizen in God's kingdom, then you have to sink. Right? Almost like quicksand, like you're going down. Whatever pride you have, whatever ability you think you have, it goes down and sinks away to a true acknowledgement of your helpless estate. It's almost like coming back to being an infant. I get to serve over the kids' ministry, so I see this all the time. Babies do not know how to take care of themselves. In fact, this is so terrible. I was just out at lunch with Pastor JT, and uh, this is not in my notes. (laughs) This might get back to him. But we're there, and Eden, his youngest, is with us. And we're just kind of eating, and he's playing with Eden. Eden's like not even one. And, and JT looks at Eden, and he goes, look, and he bonks his head into the table, and Eden goes, bonk, right into the table. I was like, oh my, it's like, that's parenting, I guess, you know? <laughs> but it kind of displays that picture, doesn't it? Like an infant can't take care of itself in any way, shape, or form. It is completely within the hands of the parent, completely, right? And for some of you, that's where you need to start with God is to say that, you know, maybe I'm not so on top of life as I thought I was. Maybe I need to go back to being an infant. Maybe I need to realize that, God, I am completely in your hands. That's where all of us have to start. That's where God would have us begin, with a call to poverty. And such a sinking in our own self-esteem, really, what it leads to is the second aspect of being a kingdom citizen which is that citizens are called to repentance and given comfort. Look with me at verse 4. It says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If you've ever 
lost someone near to you, then you know what it means to mourn. I don't wish that upon any of you, but it is an inevitable part of life. And I remember the first time it happened to me. I was a sophomore in college when I got the phone call, and I found out that a close friend of mine had been shot and killed. I didn't know what to do with that. And I remember a lot of long nights of tears and grief and sorrow, and it was heavy. And when you bring that to this text, Jesus says we should feel and really grieve over our sin in the exact same way. I think that adds a heaviness to it, that God would call us to show and to feel the same level of sorrow over our sin that we would experience when we lose a loved one. From the context of the passage, it's clear that Jesus is offering the privilege of comfort, not just to everyone who suffers a tragedy, but primarily to those who mourn the loss of their innocence and the damage that sin has caused to their relationship with God. And this is crucial for a disciple, because while it's one thing to be spiritually poor and know it, it's another thing entirely to be grieved by your sin and to repent of it. So let me put it another way. How many of you are aware that saying sorry is one thing, but being sorry is another? I think that's what Jesus is speaking of here. Being spiritually poor isn't enough by itself. Only those who repent from their sin afterwards are given comfort. And the clear application to me is that we ought to experience more godly sorrow as believers in Christ. One commentator I read said it this way. Some Christians seem to imagine, especially if they are filled with the Spirit, that they must wear a perpetual grin on their face and be continuously boisterous and bubbly. And it just stops. He puts a period and he puts, no, second period. No, the truth is that there are such things as Christian tears and too few of us ever weep them. Friends, my question for you is this. When was the last time that your sin drove you to tears? And I'm not talking about the tears that come with the shame of getting caught or the pain of your sin, but I'm talking about the sin itself. When was the last time you wept over the damage that sin has caused to your relationship with God? Do you mourn over that? If not, then you, like all the rest of us here, need to learn how to stir up your affections through prayer and through the word in regards to your sin. Why? Because Jesus says that citizens in his kingdom will be marked by a broken and a contrite heart. And he promises the comfort of forgiveness to those who repent in such a way over their sin. That is the privilege that is offered to you. And so really the first two go hand in hand. That to enter into the kingdom, to be a citizen, it is to be a broken person. It is to see how poor in spirit you truly are and then after seeing that, not just wallowing away and having a pity party, but being grieved over it and repenting, what that means, it is to turn away from that sin and to turn to Christ, who stands with open arms and grace for you. And so as that mournful repentance increases, it leads to the third aspect of our citizenship, which is that citizens of the kingdom are called to humility and given the earth. 
In verse 5, Jesus goes on to say, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In the Greek, that word for meek is praus, and it means humble or gentle. And you might recognize it as the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 to describe himself as the gentle and lowly Savior. It's meekness. And here in this passage, it is used to describe a humble disposition towards other people that comes from a true understanding of ourselves. If you have become poor in spirit and mourned over your sin, then it will teach you how to approach other people with humility. In the same way that working in the food service industry teaches you to be nice to new waiters and fast food workers. Really, that's what this does to you. I remember that my parents had a golden rule for me and all my siblings. Each of us had to work a year in food service so that we would not be trashy to people who worked in food service. For me, that meant I worked at Potbelly Subs for a year and a half. (laughs) I regret the half. Um, (laughs) But I was there, and I'll be honest, I I was not good at that job. I stank, and I messed up a lot of orders. But now, because of that experience, it helps me to have more grace for other people when they mess up mine. Do you see how that works? It's the same principle when it comes to meekness. Meekness is born out of a humble self-esteem where you look back and you realize, oh, I am nothing. I am nothing. God is everything. So why would I ever be prideful towards this person? Why would I ever think I'm better than them? Why would I ever think they're better than me? Both those are pride. It's the comparison in either way. In Christ, you are given meekness through a a humble self-esteem. And such people, Jesus says, will inherit the earth. And this is where it gets countercultural. Because the expectation we bring to the table is that you have to be mighty. You have to be ambitious. You have to to steamroll other people if you're going to be something in this world. Right? You have to go out there and get it. But for the believer, our responsibility and our privilege is the complete opposite. We don't enter into our spiritual inheritance through our might, but through our meekness. So that when we have humbled ourselves before God and man, Christ's divine power gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. Even if it seems like we're deprived or poor in the eyes of the world, it is the humble who will be given the earth because they will know what it means to be forgiven and to live with Christ. That is life-altering. If you have an obsession with wealth and power and money, then what you need is meekness. I would say, go look at Christ. He described himself as that gentle and lowly Savior. He has called us to do the same. He has called us to do the same. And really, it is from that position then of humility and stability that the fourth aspect of our citizenship is born, which is a hunger for righteousness and the gift of satisfaction. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. As a citizen in the kingdom of God, our responsibility is, is to build up a hunger for righteousness. And the privilege that comes with it is our satisfaction. I love that. 
And really, what it makes me think of is my years in high school. As a football player, one of my favorite memories were the team meals that we got to have every Friday before a game. And now just come with me on this journey, because I'm going to go back into my childhood and bring you with me. Every Friday, what would happen is that we would have what's called an easy practice. And what that means is you would still helmet and pads, but you got to wear shorts. You didn't have to go the full uniform. It was awesome. And you would get to have a fun practice where you are running the Oklahoma drill, where you are just nailing the other guys. Like you're just beating the tar out of each other. So it was fun for us. And so you can imagine that for, you know, four hours, we're all doing that. We're going through the plays. We're all getting just disgusting. And then we would all shed the pads and we would make a mad dash for the cafeteria for what would be our favorite meal of the week. Now, why would it be our favorite meal? Because they always catered Olive Garden. (laughs) And it always came with unlimited breadsticks. (laughs) And so you can imagine 80 young men just charging in there and gorging themselves repeatedly again and again on breadsticks. And let me tell you something. You have never seen a dinner table with more joy and more satisfaction than my high school football team, the Shawnee Mission South Raiders. There's nothing quite like it. And for me, that's the picture I see when I read verse 6. In all honesty, it's funny, but according to Jesus, citizens in the kingdom of God are called up really to work up a ravenous hunger. That's what God is saying. He's saying, build up your appetite for righteousness. So much so that it seems like your hunger will never be satisfied until you encounter the table of his righteousness. Isn't that awesome? It is to say, I am never satisfied. I am always running harder and harder after righteousness. And again and again, Jesus says, I am enough for you. And it is going to bring you joy. I will satisfy you with my righteousness. In Scripture, this righteousness is described as having at least two components. The first one is legal righteousness, and the second is moral righteousness. There are a couple more, but those are the two that are important for us to know. Legal righteousness is our declared righteousness that comes through justification. It is us being declared right in our relationship with God as sin is no longer credited to our account but instead to Jesus Christ. Moral righteousness, on the other hand, is a righteousness of character and conduct which is pleasing to God. It is the inner desire of the heart to be made like Christ, not only when we are with Him in heaven, but today, to say, I want to be like my Savior. And in regards to both types of righteousness, our responsibility is to maintain a healthy and a hearty spiritual appetite with the privilege and promise being that as we cultivate this hunger to greater and greater heights, Christ will satisfy us again and again. I know that for me, this ties personally to my testimony. As I went through high school and struggled, I I was a PK, so I was raised up in a pastor's home. I heard it all, but I was not satisfied yet. And so I got to high school, and I thought I could find that in other things. And I chased, and I chased, and I chased. I never found it. Everything I chased left me wanting more. 
But then I met some people who were the exact opposite as me. They had nothing. They had more joy than I'd ever seen. And what I came to realize is that satisfaction for the insatiable hunger in your soul can only be found in Jesus Christ. And the reason for that is because God is the one who created you with that desire. He has built you for worship. He has built you to be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. And you can try chasing all the other things to find satisfaction, but they will not give you what you're looking for. The only thing that can do it is Jesus Christ. So that's what it means to be a citizen. It means that we have been called to spiritual poverty, which leads to repentance, and to repentance, which leads to humility, and humility, which leads us then to a hunger for righteousness. For the sake of time, I'm going to close with those four. (laughs) But before I do, I would be remiss not to mention the second half. So according to Jesus, kingdom citizens, in verses 7 through 12, according to Christ, we are also called to be merciful, we're called to be pure in heart, we're called to be peacemakers, and we're called to be persecuted. And that's the trajectory. Again, some of these come into play at different points in your life. But as you become a disciple to Christ... Those first four really focus on your relationship with God. And that's where I've stayed tonight, because I think it's worth staying there. But afterwards, it goes to your relationship with people. When others are hateful towards you, you respond with mercy. When other people in this world are giving themselves over to lust and to debauchery and depravity, you are called to be pure in heart. Where everywhere you look, there is conflict and really just increasing divides, you are called to be a peacemaker. And John, Pastor John, did a whole series on that. One word, peacemaker. And my key takeaway is that being a peacemaker doesn't mean you step away from conflict. It means you step into it. Only under the guidance of God's will for your life. And it only makes sense then that as you do that, it leads to persecution. And so that is a comprehensive view of the life of a believer. And all of those characteristics ought to mark your life as a citizen in the kingdom of God. And my encouragement to all of you would be this. Don't neglect them. Do not neglect them. Instead, pursue those traits and pursue the Beatitudes passionately. Let everything in your life be given to reflecting your citizenship in heaven, not as your way to earn it from God, but in response to the fact that he has already given you the kingdom through his son, Jesus Christ. And now you are a servant to the king. That is what you are, a citizen. You have responsibilities and you have privileges. And the joy of your life will be to pursue them to the glory of Christ with everything that you have. those of you who are here and are not yet citizens, if you've not given your life to Christ, the offer is given to you right now. The amazing thing about scripture and about the gospel is that Christ invites all. There's no, <laughs> there's no height test you have to pass. All that's required is faith. And so that 
Christ would come to you and through his word he would say, believe in me, repent of your sins, trust that I am the son of God and that through the life that I lived, through the death that I died and through the return that I am soon to make, I will rescue you if you put your trust in me. That's the good news for all of us, that Jesus is enough and that because he is enough, we have work to do. That's what you find in the Sermon on the Mount. And so over the next couple of months and next couple of weeks, our heart will be to really dive into what each and every one of those look like. They play out in the rest of the sermon. And again, my vision, our vision for this series is that you would walk away looking more like Christ than you did at the beginning. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that you are enough and that, Lord, we don't have to earn anything from you to belong. That, God, it's all freely given through Jesus Christ. (laughs) God, I pray that you would stir up our affections for our Savior and that, Lord, as we direct our eyes to him and that as we strive to live for you, God, we would do it all by the power of your Spirit. That, God, we would be humble, that we would grieve sin, Lord, that we would be meek, and that we would hunger for righteousness, and that, Lord, we would experience the privileges that come with those steps, Lord, not only in the future, but now, that, God, we would experience blessing today, that like King Josiah, there would be a transformation in our lives, in this group, and in our city even, as your law is rediscovered and as it drives us to Jesus Christ. God, only you can do this. If we, if we strive to build without you, we labor in vain. God, it has to be your work. It had to be your work in my life. It had to be your work in every life here. God, salvation is a miracle. It comes through your spirit. And so I pray that by your spirit, more would come, that people's lives would be transformed and that they would be set free from the bondage to sin, to worship you forever in this life and in the life to come. God, we pray that all these things would happen ultimately so that your name would be glorified. We want the kingdom to go forth. We want to be faithful citizens so that our king is exalted. He is the most glorious king. He is the most gracious king. And Lord, I pray that even in our weakness, we would follow him faithfully to the end. We pray this in his name. Amen.